if you go to Bloomberg and you type into Bloomberg Terminal and you go look up publicly traded technology companies and you plot on the y-axis the enterprise value to sales, which is basically what multiple the market capitalization is over their forward revenue. Do you want to impact the world and still turn a profit? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to Growth Everywhere. This is the show where you'll find real conversations with real entrepreneurs. They'll share everything from their biggest struggle to the exact strategies they use on a daily basis. So if you're ready for a value-packed interview, listen on. Here's your host, Eric Sue. Before we jump into today's interview, if you guys could leave a review and a rating and also subscribe as well, that would be a huge help to the podcast. So if you actually enjoy the content and you'd like to hear more of it, please support us by leaving us a review and subscribe to the podcast as well. Thanks so much. Okay, everyone, today we have Matt Berry, who is the founder and CEO of Freelancer, which is a global online freelancing and crowdsourcing marketplace. Um, I'm going to let him talk about um, some of the numbers because I'm really excited about numbers all the time. And I'm, I'm glad to hear, um, kind of before we started, um, I, asked, I asked Matt what his three passion points were, and he said revenue, revenue, revenue. I like talking about revenue. So, uh, Matt, without further ado, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. So why don't you give us a little background, kind of um, just kind of who you are and what your story is. Sure. Uh, so I'm the chief executive of the Freelancer Group, uh, which consists of a bunch of companies. Freelancer.com, which is a global marketplace for jobs. We have about 35 million people around the world in every country you can possibly think of. And you can think of it just basically like an eBay for jobs. So any job you can think of, you can post on Freelancer and there's people from around the world that would do that job for you. Uh, we're in 1,350 skills or more. Uh, so everything from design for me, a website, a logo, um, graphic design, right through to astrophysics, aerospace engineering, genetic engineering, biotechnology, manufacturing, walk my dog, you know, clean my carpets, you name it, any job you can possibly think of, you get done on Freelancer. We've done uh, almost 16 million, actually, I think we just passed over 16 million jobs to date. And we acquired about 15 competitors in the space and merged them all in over the last decade. So uh, we're the largest in the world in terms of what we do by number of users and number of projects posted. But in the group, we've got a bunch of other companies. It uh, also includes escrow.com. And this is a global payments business. Uh, so you can think of escrow.com like PayPal. But the difference is PayPal and a bunch of you know, all the innovation that's happening in payments is primarily designed around buying cups of coffee. So I can buy a cup of coffee, I can tap my phone and and, and share a cup of coffee with my friend, I can maybe use the facial, facial recognition to, to buy a cup of coffee. But escrow is different. Escrow is about buying things that are expensive and complicated, things like airplanes, things like you know, jewelry, gemstones, diamonds, uh, air, um, boats, cars, zebras. You know, There's a space station going up in 2021 if they get off the ground and the tickets are $10 million a seat and we're taking deposits already for those um, those tickets. Um, we sell IP address ranges, you know, domain names. We've sold the domain names to Uber.com, Snapchat.com, SpaceX.com, Instagram.com, WeChat.com, Chrome.com. I mean, you name it. Uh, it it's, it's gone through us in domain names. And so this is a business that's done um, about four, I think four, four and a half billion US dollar in payment volume. It's been around for about 20 years. And then in the group, we have uh, uh, some smaller businesses. One's Freightlancer, which is a global marketplace for freight. 
and this is for shipping things that are expensive and complicated, so things like 1,600-ton cranes, um, manufacturing, construction, and so forth. We own Warrior Forum, which is in the marketing space that many of your listeners probably are familiar with. That's been around since 1997, and this is a the world's largest uh, community of internet marketers, 1.3 million internet marketers talking about any topic you possibly think of. And then we also run a conference, a technology conference called StarCon. So there's a bunch of things happening in the group. Awesome. Great. And how long has Freelancer been around? That, that, that was your first thing, right? That's right. So I've been running for a decade. I acquired it in 2009, but it originated from a bunch of marketplaces that started uh, between 1999 and 2004. So get a freelancer, um, uh, rent a and so forth. Got it. Okay. And then what were uh, 2018 revenues for freelancer? Uh, they're about 50 something million dollars and we did about 740 million or so in turnover through the group. Wow. Got it. And are you able to talk about how much uh, cumulative revenue the group did? Uh, that, that is the group level. Got it. Okay, perfect. Cool. So it's, it sounds like you're doing a lot of fun things. You've got escrow, warrior form, all these different properties. Uh, it was, I'm just kind of curious. This is kind of going off script, but uh, what what drives you? <laughs> Look, I mean, fundamentally, I realized at an early age I'm unemployable. And so if I want to basically um, you know, have a job, I've got to credit it myself. And so uh, you know, I'm basically uh, you know, energized about building a, a, a great big technology company, I guess and in some ways we're trying to build Amazon on a, on a shoestring budget, but not, not so much in the consumer space, more in the, in the, in the, in, you know, to the, the world of commerce um, and industry. And uh, you know, just excited to come to work every day around very, very smart people. Great. And then I think uh, I remember listening to, to one of your other interviews about you not being a good student. So maybe you can talk about you not being a good student and you being unemployable, like any examples or stories. I don't know. Look, I, I, that was one interview and I don't know where and off that came, that came from. <laughs> I was a pretty good student. I had a scholarship to, 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 to high school and I went to Stanford University. So I don't Oh, okay. <laughs> that, 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 that was a funny comment that actually threw me the last interview I did with Mixpanel. Um, and I think only because he uh, he reached out to the guy who topped uh, my high school. <laughs> and, and of course, from his perspective, everyone was a, was a poor student. So yeah, I don't know what that's from. Got it. Okay, cool. And then I, I, there's, I think there was an interesting story about your Stanford class about and then how strong your class was because you had one of the founders of X in the class as well, right? So maybe you could, was that, a, was that a, the MBA program or was that like a regular class? No, I did a Master's of Electrical Engineering. And 97, 98, and of course, that was a pretty magical time to appear at Stanford University. You know, uh, the whole dot-com boom was really just about to take off. And, you know, the guys from Google were there, you know, in one of my classes, which was um, um, IE273, which is uh, basically a technology venture formation. Uh, there were 40 people in the class, and you had to form 10 teams of four. One person was the CEO, one person was the CTO, one person was the VP of sales and marketing, one person was the CFO. And you had to write basically a business plan and pitch it at the end to entrepreneurs and venture capitalists. And, you know, I mean, some of the most famous venture, venture, venture capitalists in the, in, in the world were basically, you know, marking your plans, although as a young student, you didn't really know exactly who they were. But in that in that class, I would say um, the people that went on sub- subsequently to start businesses, if you add up the total market capitalization of all businesses started by people in just my class of 40 people in my year only, you know, um, it's it's well over 200 billion uh, US dollars, 40 people. Uh, in fact, it's probably 300 billion. I, I, I've literally have lost tabs on a bunch of people. Uh, and that's just my class. I mean, before that, Yahoo started in the class, Excite started in the class, a bunch of other things. So, and since subsequently, I'm sure uh, a whole bunch of big famous companies have started that I'm unaware of. So, I mean, it's a pretty, it was a pretty magical thing. I mean, we didn't, we didn't realize at the time <laughs> what was going on. Um, it was just a bunch of smart people in a room and, um, it was some great, great, um, great lecturers. Got it. And, and what did you, okay. So from, you know, let, let's say you graduated from Stanford and you didn't acquire freelancer until 2009 or so. What, what were you doing in between that time? 
Yeah, so when I, when I graduated, it's a funny story. I, one of my classmates actually from that class said, "Why don't you go start a business with me?" And I thought, "Gee, do I really want to go try and start a business with 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 a, with a you know, one of my schoolmates, or do I actually want to go and work in one of those you know um, rock star startups in Silicon Valley?" So I I turned him down uh, and joined a, a security startup called um, originally Verigard. Um, which changed them to Securify, and about nine months later got bought by Kroll, which is, I think, the, the largest intelligence and investigations company in the world. It's become kind of like the private sector CIA, which is a very interesting company. And then my friend went off and actually raised $40 million, I think about six weeks later, and started a company called Underlay, which was for aggregated auctioning. So it, he figured out that on the auction sites like Yahoo Auctions back then, that 80% of the volume is done by 20% of the um, 20% of the, um, the, the users. And so he built tools to allow you to, to auction across various platforms and so forth. And uh, he's actually become a very famous entrepreneur Munjal Sharan, he's started a, a bunch of companies. He sold luck.com to Google uh, and uh, he's now doing Health IQ. But yeah, so I worked, I worked uh, at Kroll for a little bit and then came back to Australia, worked briefly in venture capital. And then after that, started a company called Sensory Networks, which was for high performance pattern matching of network traffic for um, um, you know, detecting security threats like viruses, spam, content uh, signatures and so forth. And that company ultimately sold to Intel. Uh, and then I started in 2009. I started uh, freelancer. Awesome. So you just you you just love playing the game, man. It seems like uh, you've you've got a formula that works. Ah, oh, it's so good so far. Cool. Well, I, I do want to talk about a little bit. I, I do want to go into um, M&A a little bit because you've acquired what you said over 15 websites now, right? Well, it's 15 direct competitors of freelancer. I think it's about 23 or 24. If I I've lost track of the number of companies. Okay, so let's say someone's a, a you know someone's an entrepreneur right now. You know, we, we talk a lot about marketing on this podcast, a lot about sales too, right? We don't talk too much about M um, and A as a way of uh, as a method of growth, right? Um, so, what, what are your tips for someone that maybe is, is starting out on how they can get started with M and A, how they should think about it, any resources, things like that? Well, I mean, the first thing to remember is if you acquire a business that's different from the business you're running now, it is very, very, very difficult to do that successfully. You know, if you've got a complete, if you've got one business and you have a completely separate business you're trying to buy, and you buy that second business, it is you know you've got to have two management teams, two engineering teams. They're doing completely different things. It is extremely difficult to do. I didn't do that until well down the path of basically consolidating the freelancer space. So where I just started on that path was really just consolidating the competitors of freelancers. So I started with get a freelancer and then I acquired the domain name freelancer.com and rebranded it. And then from there I acquired companies like script Lance, rent Dakota, um, freelancer.co.uk, Zlensnia in Poland, uh, Nubello in Latin America, ProLancer in Brazil, uh, and so on. And I just merged them together and shut them down. So I wasn't running separate code bases, separate teams, separate management teams, separate engineering, separate, separate stacks. I was just merging the customer bases in and really just consolidating or rolling up the space. And that can be a very effective strategy if, you're, if you've got a marketplace. In fact, I kind of say to people who are building marketplaces, if you're going to do that, uh, build a marketplace, you, want, you have to acquire all the competitors and merge them all in. Because you know, winners, you know, marketplaces. Um, it's going to trend towards winner takes all in in some parts of the space around marketplaces, particularly around consumer. Uh, but you have to be careful how you do it. You have to pay the right price for it. If you're too late and you and you don't manage to do it, you end up in a sort of Groupon situation where every time you go to a new um, market, there's a competitor who's um, basically cloned your business model, and you have to pay through the nose to acquire them because the venture capitalists have got involved and they've they've really mucked the price up. But I mean, that can be very effective. And in fact, in many ways, if you're very careful and very patient, you can actually um, acquire customers um, more cost effectively than Greenfield's marketing, such as through Google AdWords or what have you. And that, that's kind of what we did is we, we merged together the space 
with a lot of luck and a lot of timing faster than anyone really realized what was going on and much cheaper than it would have ever happened with marketing. Uh, and plus we could competitors while we did that. However, when we, you know, when you start stepping out and you start acquiring businesses that are completely different, it is very, very, very difficult. And I do not recommend it yeah, to anyone unless you're very, very, very experienced and you have a lot of spare capacity because it, it is a very difficult thing to do. I mean, when we acquired escrow.com, um, and this is a business that had been running since, um, 1999, started by Fidelity, funded by SoftBank. Uh, a great payments business. It does about half a billion in volume a year in payment volume. This is a business that you know I had to I had to split my management team in two. I had to hire uh, sixty people, now seventy something people uh, in five countries. I had to rebuild the entire technical stack. I had to move it into Amazon. I had to um, you know launch a more rigorous AML and KYC program. It you know I had to do marketing around it. It is extremely difficult to do and. I would say that you know, you know p- people say that most M and A um, fails, and it's particularly risky when you're buying completely different businesses. It, it is a, is a, it's a lot better thing to do when the, you've got just a, a direct competitor with a very similar business model, very similar sort of pricing model, and you can merge it in and shut down one of the stacks. Uh, yeah, so that that's super interesting. So also the way I think about it too is, you know, when you're buying the other competitors, this is for the marketers on the show too. You're also buying the domain authority of those sites too, and you're, you're merging them together. So your site just gets stronger and stronger, and then you basically get to kill the competitors, and then basically you get to add on the revenue and all all the other benefits too if they're similar, right? So I, I guess maybe you saying, you know, escrow.com was a different business, much much more difficult, right? So do you think? You know, obviously it worked out for you, but are you saying you would avoid buying separate businesses, like different businesses now? Uh, no, I've, I've, I've done it now. <laughs> you know, I can't really help myself, but um, I would just, you know, if, 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 you, if you're kind of new to acquiring, uh, new to sort of M&A, I, I don't recommend you do it in a hurry. Oh, so don't start with it. Yeah, I'm just saying, I, I'm saying it's, it's, it's dramatically easier to just to buy a competitor and merge them in than it is um, you know, operationally to buy a completely separate business. Right. Agreed. Cool. How about, I mean, you know, I, I nerd out on this stuff all the time with my friends. Uh, so you know, creative deal structuring, can you share a story about how you structured a deal and maybe you, you maybe you feel like you stole the company? I don't know. Maybe, maybe stole is not the right word, but you got a really good deal. <laughs> I took an escrow. Uh, it doesn't have to be escrow, just any type of deal that you might have structured in the past where um, you did something really creative and maybe you can share the story. Well, generally, I'm, generally I'm just very patient. You know, I don't chase the price. I don't, I don't look after, I don't look for, for, Look at companies where there's institutional backing because once a venture capitalist involved is involved, they manipulate the capital structure and the, and the deal terms so that the the valuation is unrealistic. It's, it's 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 kind of like the long con game that's going on in Silicon Valley really at the moment where um you know everyone wants to be a unicorn and you know it's there there are ways you can synthesize um uh, a market capitalization of a billion dollars through liquidation preference and ratchets and other other preferred um, stock uh, terms in order to um, you know, create the um, window dressing of, of, of a high valuation, um, but actually not the reality of uh, a valuation that would be transferable to the public markets. So, you know, typically, you know, I just buy the assets of a company and I try and merge it in and shut it down. And, you know, you, you're just going to be very patient and you're going to make sure that you, you, what you're buying is going to be a creative. So that what that means is that, you know, one plus one equals three. Um, you don't want to cause any value destruction. You got to be careful that the thing you're buying, the pricing model, isn't pumped up too high. And I'll give you an example. What I mean by that is, you know, typically, if a business isn't going so well, what they'll do is they'll raise pricing. So if they're charging a commission of, say, 10%, they'll change the commission to 20%. Or if they're charging $10 a month for their membership, they'll charge $20 a month for their membership. 
And the problem is if you're buying a business where the pricing model is ahead of your pricing model, so you're buying a business where they're charging a 20 or 30% commission and you charge a 10% commission, you're going to have to analyze that business from the perspective of translating that business model to your business model. So, you know, someone might be doing a 30% commission and you're doing a 10% commission, which means you've got to divide their revenue by one third. Um, otherwise, you can have value destruction when you try and merge them in. So you have to be kind of careful there. So so actually quite a number of businesses, this is actually a bit of a tip for some of your listeners who have actually got businesses out there. Your business can become unacquirable by pumping your pricing up too high. For example, in the contest space, which is like you know, post a contest and get people to compete in the contest. So you know, things like logo websites and so forth. We've never bought one of them because typically the volume is so low in those businesses, they'll do things like they'll increase the commission to 30, 40, 50, in some cases 55% commission. And they'll do things that, like they'll they'll fix the pricing. So they'll say, if you want to get one logo, it's three ninety nine. Uh, one designer designing a few, it's three ninety nine. If you want thirty different designs, it's it's six ninety nine, and so forth. Those sort of businesses become un- unacquirable because there is no way that a that an acquirer can actually translate that business model back to a realistic, long term, sustainable business model without massive um, discounting of the revenue lines. And then and then you get an expectation mismatch with the um, with the vendor and actually you in terms of actually can you make money out of this or not um and in a way that's kind of what's happening with a lot of unicorns as well like with with when when you're doing 20 million in revenue and you've got a market capitalization of of a a billion dollars yeah unless you are an acquirer where you can take that product or service and just shove it down your distribution channel and and make the money really quickly and make the payback really quickly yeah a lot of those businesses become unacquirable because simply there's there's just value destruction i mean there's no way that those companies in the public markets will translate to that sort of valuation i mean typically if you go to Bloomberg and you type into Bloomberg Terminal and you go look up um, publicly traded um, uh, technology companies and you plot on the y-axis the enterprise value to sales, which is basically what multiple the market capitalization is over their forward revenue, this, this year's revenue, and then on the x-axis you plot um, revenue growth year on year, typically you'll see across you know, so the 10% revenue growth to you know, 50 60% revenue growth year on year, you'll see a somewhat linear relationship. And what that works out to is that if your revenue growth is growing about 40% year on year, you typically might get in the public markets about a 10 times valuation on your, on your current revenue. So if you're doing 20 million in revenue and you're growing at 40% year on year, typically your market capitalization in the public markets might be about 200 million bucks, right? And and what you're seeing in the valley is you're seeing a lot, a lot of these companies that should you know, that would translate to a 200 million market capitalization in the um, public sphere. You're seeing them actually um, being financed at you know a billion, two billion, three billion dollar market capitalizations, which are which are just fantasy valuations. They're vanity valuations. They're they're, they're used to uh, for publicity. They're used for marketing. They're used to um, issue stock to employees at uh, inflated valuations, so you don't, you don't have to really give much away. And they're not. They're not. Ultimately, you can have to pay the piper and actually translate that to a um, a realistic um, um, multiple at some point in the future. And you, whether or not you take it public, or whether or not you sell it. Got it. That's super helpful. And when you say logo sites, I mean like a ninety nine designs would be like something those comparable. Yeah, those are the sites. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's hundreds hundred of those guys around, but it's it, they they typically because they don't have much volume, they they all pump the pump the commissions and pump the pricing, and 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 they become un, unacquirable. 
Right. Okay. And so, you know, how does like a, a beginning entrepreneur, you know, if, let's say someone's in Silicon Valley right now and they're listening to all this and they're like, man, you know, what Matt's saying makes sense, but I, I really don't know this stuff. I really need to cover my ass. So are there any books or resources where people can kind of educate themselves on um, when it comes to, you know, deal structuring or like, um, you know, just stuff to avoid when it comes to um, the stuff that, you know, like the, it could be venture financing or things like that? Well, I mean, the amazing thing is there's a whole, the whole wealth of human knowledge is online now. So it's, it's all out there on the internet. Um, I've produced a bunch of videos. They're on YouTube. You can go to my LinkedIn. Uh, I've got a bunch of articles I've, I've written there on, on various topics. But it's all out there if you look for it, right? There's, um, it's, you know, it's, it's a great thing about today. It's, it's, it's all out there. So, yeah, I mean, a, a good place to start is just go to my LinkedIn, see some of my essays, go to, go to YouTube, look at some of my videos. Cool. And sort of for you, I mean, you know, you're a busy guy. You you sound like you're very, well, you are very methodical, all the stuff that you've done so far. Why do you, uh, why are you out there producing content? Why are you doing a podcast like this one? Like we didn't even know each other before we did this. I just want to get in your head. <laughs> it's interesting to talk to smart people, right? It's interesting to kind of, you know, if you've got, got some thoughts in your head, and you want, it's some, sometimes good to put them down on paper and, and get them out there and, and then, you know, talk to people who, who read your material and, um, yeah, you meet interesting people, you get interesting feedback, you kind of learn new things. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's good to be out there and talking to people. Great. And so like for you, um, I'm always interested because I can tell when I, when I'm talking to someone that I perceive to be a, a deep thinker, right? So, you know, you, how do you, so for example, one of my friends, when he thinks about deals and I, this doesn't have to just send around deals, but the way he thinks about things is, you know, if I'm going to do a deal, I'm only going to buy a company where they'll let me buy like 20 to 30% of the company. Right. And I'm only going to do, do a deal that way. That's like ironclad. So do you have any specific formula for you know acquiring a business or maybe just how you think about things to just to go a level higher so you can choose your own adventure there yeah so your, your friend's thinking from a from a minority investor or, or a venture investor perspective where the, the objective is to try and get control of the business um and i talk about this actually in a in a pod in a uh, video that i i've got online which is called um how to not get screwed in the venture financing which is actually on YouTube, which might be interesting to some of some of your listeners. Sure. Yeah. You know, the goal the goal from an investor's perspective is is number one, you want to give a val- vanity valuation uh, for a whole bunch of purposes, particularly because you're trying to compete with the the, the US VCs or you may be a US VC or a Silicon Valley VC, etc. Uh, and there's, there's some benefits there around being able to issue stock at inflated valuations, um, you know, to the detriment of the employees, unfortunately, um, and around marketing and and being part of the unicorn club, etc. But then um, the flip side there is also, well, how do you get your payoff in in the long term from a venture perspective, and how do you get control over making sure that you know if something goes wrong that you've got control over the business, even though you've invested in a minority minority stake. So typically that gets achieved in the venture space. I'm not talking about my perspective now; I'm just talking about from your friend's perspective. You know, and why you might want 20 percent is typically you you, you might. Want, want to do that so you can get a board seat so you can um structure the board so it's like two two seats for the founders two seats for the, the venture guys or the investors and one independent and that sort of structure typically the investor will get control immediately because the independent there's a joke that says that the great thing about independent directors is the more you pay them the more independent they get and there's another thing known as the golden rule which is he who has the gold rules which basically means right. that you know if you can get a three versus two scenario on the board that's a scenario that will never be able to be unpicked in a hurry and you'll get control board, board control uh, and then through through a preferred stock structure, there's ways you know with liquidation preference, participating preferred liquidation preferences, and so forth that you can actually get a payoff, which is more commensurate to what the valuation, you know, what what the sort of payoff you'd get if the valuation was sort of a public markets valuation, you know, one share one vote sort of situation. 
in my perspective, what I typically do, I, I've got, I, I don't really like doing um, minority investments. I don't do venture investments really anymore. I've made some venture investments. I really consider it philanthropy rather than actually <laughs> professional investing because typically I dust, dust my money when I do that. You know, venture investing is the worst type of investing possible, in my opinion, from a from a return perspective, risk return perspective. Uh, and early stage investing is is the is the most extreme end of the the worst type of investing uh, from uh, for, you know, out there. From my perspective, from an operator's perspective, you know, I'm not I'm not trying to create a portfolio of investments where I kind of take a big swing and try and um, return the entire fund with um, you know, one investment and try and try and um, make some cream off the top from from the rest. You know, while most of the portfolio is is going to donut, uh, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to grow my revenue and I'm trying to find synergistic businesses that will help you know grow my other businesses. And so, from my perspective, I typically want to buy 100. percent I have once bought a business uh, 50/50 because I like the operator of the business and he had domain knowledge um, that I thought was very valuable that I didn't have. And I think, um, you know, I could I could work very very well with that person. It's it's tended to to be really good. Uh, but typically, I'm looking to buy 100% of business that I can merge in somehow, and you know, really help grow uh, all my other businesses and in a smart way, or increase my um, my strength strategically in the market um, through um, uh, through something which is very very complementary or something which is really required in today's age of increased regulation. I mean, I would say, just on that just briefly, I would say the defining characteristic of really the last two years in the technology industry is the regulation that's coming to the space is extreme and is not getting any better. And I think ultimately this, this is actually potentially going to backfire on consumers. But um, but for now, um, you know, quite a number of technology companies, uh, you know, half the time is actually spent just keeping up with the regulation that's happening, not just the federal level, but the state level around the world. And... Um, you know, I think I think ultimately what that's going to do is it's going to end up like the banking sector and the financial sector, where you have a, a bunch of really large incumbents who are protected by regulation, and it becomes very very hard for new entrants to come into the space as a result of all the regulation that's coming to the technology sector. Yeah. So the, the other thing too is, so why do you prefer to um, own a hundred percent and then kind of put it within your portfolio versus um, the minority piece? Is it because you have more control? Like, what is it exactly? Well, because I'm, I'm considering from an operations perspective, an operating perspective. I'm not thinking from an investing perspective. I'm not in it for financial return in terms of the, the, the capital gain on the stock. I'm thinking of it from how can I grow my revenue. And you want to be able to consolidate your revenue, which means you need to own a majority as a minimum to be able to consolidate the revenue. Uh, and then really just you know, from a, you know, what makes sense is that if, if the business is great and it's going to grow really, really well, you want to own 100% of it. right? You don't want to own half of it. And have to go buy it back at some later stage, right? If I'm going to contribute my management team and our expertise to growing that business, you know, it's just going to get more and more expensive down the track. So you may as well buy all of it now rather than buy buy half of it now and pay a lot more for it later. For example, when, when eBay, I'll give you a classic example of someone who did it the other way around. So eBay, when they grew, they went around the world and they, um, in every market around the world, well, market by market, not every market probably, but in market by market, they they would find a local partner. And for example, um, when they went to a country like Australia, they found one of the largest media companies in Australia and they said, you know, we'll put $3 million in, you put $3 million in and we'll own eBay Australia 50-50, right? You know, that became ultimately very, very successful. And I think they paid about $140 million to buy back the other half about six years later. So, you know, you, you know, you kind of, you kind of want to own the thing 100% if you, if you're operating it and you're, and you're growing it yourself, you don't want to kind of pay by half of it now and then have to pay a lot more for it later on if you can help it. Love it. When, when's the Matt Berry book coming out? 
I don't know. I get some time. There's just so much in there that I'd love to just uh, unpack. But anyway, we'll work towards wrapping up here. A couple more questions from my side. Uh, so we, we talked about you know the things that have gone well, but um, what about is there any story you can share? Maybe like a big struggle you can share in these last I don't know uh, ten, fifteen years of doing business. Yeah. So uh, look, a friend of mine, Mike Cannon Brooks, runs Atlassian, said something which I thought was great, which was if you come to work and you're not smelling smoke, you're not sniffing hard enough. And uh, it's absolutely true. Every day you go to work, something's burning. And in fact, when the bigger, bigger your company gets, multiple things are burning uh, when you're coming to work every day. So you know, you just have to. Um, you know, your goal as CEO is to figure out when you come to work where, where the smoke's coming from and try and address it as fast as possible. The, the, the biggest challenges I think are really around people. It's around getting the right people in the right roles, um, you know, um, incentivizing them, um, retaining them, helping them develop, et cetera. As you get bigger, the, you've got more, more and more people. It becomes more and more challenging to be able to do that. You know, the biggest thing I'm looking for in my business are people willing to put their hand up and take initiative and leadership to take charge of things because there's just so many things going on that, you know, you can't, you can't get your head across everything. You've got to be able to rely and delegate on people. It's the only way to be able to grow as a, as a manager. It doesn't matter what level of the company you are, whether you're a team leader or whether you're more senior. In the company, you, you you got to be able to delegate to people to grow, and particularly at the CEO level, you got to you got to have great people you can you can you can rely on, and you just you can, you can let them go and 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 not have to kind of worry about them. And um, so I think you know, the biggest challenges that don't get any easier and become a bigger problem over time is just finding great people and and um, and putting them in the roles and and um, making sure they, they they do their best. And it's kind of like the I don't know if you've heard of the Peter Principle. Yeah, in my in my company. Um, I, I like to give people opportunity and I like to promote them and, uh, if, they, if they do well and they achieve good things. And um, the Peter principle is you get promoted to the level of your incompetence. <laughs> so, for example, you, you start off and you do really well and you get promoted to team leader and then someone says you're doing really well. That will give you a second team. Then I'll give you a third team. And then once you get the third team, the whole thing just falls apart. <laughs> because you just get promoted to the level of your incompetence, right? People max out, yep. Yeah, they max out. And it's very hard when someone, you, you take someone to a certain level and then they don't do very well at that level, but they're doing really well at the level before. It's very hard psychologically to then say to them, you know what, you've kind of reached the pinnacle of your ability right now. I've got to take something off you and, um, and, and put, you down, put you down a notch at that point. Typically people lose face and they kind of, they want to quit because they feel that they've, um, you know, the, the, it's been a bit of a humiliation for them. So, so you know, it's very, it's very tricky, and it's, you have to be very careful about how you do it. But you know, so how do you, how do you approach that? Because I know for me, when when I approach those conversations, I'm not the most in my strange finder. You know, one one of the things that's weak for me is is the empathy, the, the empathy portion, right? So I deliver feedback very directly. So when you are you the one delivering it, or do you have someone else do it? Like, how do you handle that? Uh, well, it really depends. The answer um, there are. I'll do it, or some of the some of the person in the company will be doing it in the management team. But um, I mean, typically these situations you can kind of see them as they as a kind of it's like a, almost like a slow motion train wreck when when they start to occur, and and you know a junior manager is going to be being put a little bit too far ahead of kind of where their capability is. You know, sometimes people are really receptive to it. You know, it's really a minority of circumstances where people are receptive to it, and they go, "Look, I, I really understand. I, I need to learn more." And I you know, and and I appreciate the fact you kind of recognize this and 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 so forth. But more often than not, the thing becomes a train wreck. More more often than not, people get really resentful. They they feel they get disgruntled. Uh, they become toxic, and then the only thing to do, unfortunately, is to find a way to exit them out of the business. Yep, agreed. Cool. So, two more questions from my side. Uh, what is one new tool that you've added in the last year that's added a lot of value? So, it could be like a, an app that you added, like a meditation app, or it could be like a Peloton bike, anything like that. 
gee, I have to have, to, have to think here. You throw me a little bit, especially when you you kind of um, anchored it with the with the fitness fitness. Oh, I tell you, I tell you, well, if you are talking about fitness, there's a there's a fitness thing I took up actually in the last year, which which actually um, was amazing. Which was um, there's a thing called F45, and I don't know if it's come to the US yet or not, but it's it's kind of a bit, it's really like a CrossFit thing that's kind of run by computers. Um, you go you go to the gym, they run it, they run it, it goes for 45 minutes, and you kind of watch the computer screens. There's some trainers in the room, obviously, kind of helping you out, etc. But um, it's just incredible. Like I was very skeptical of it, and I kind of I kind of started going. And let me tell you, it just just it just gets you really fit, really, really, really fast. I've, so I've been going to that kind of three or four times a week. That's been great. Cool. So that is that like a gym where they have classes? It's like a gym, yeah. But um, yeah, it's not really an answer to question in terms of that. But you kind of threw me with the. Go. I'll, I'll take it. That, that that still works anyway. Uh, that's cool. And what is? Uh, and I feel like you're you read a lot, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So typically, this would be for what's one must-read book you'd recommend. But I think from a guy like you, I, I like to know the two most important books for you from you. Well, I'll tell you a book I've just read, which I thought was pretty amazing, which is a book by Edward Bernays, um, who is the godfather of um, uh, public relations. He actually is the, I think, the great uncle of Mark Randolph, who I actually brought out to Australia on stage for one night in Sydney, one night in Melbourne, who is the founding CEO of Netflix. And his uh, his great uncle, I think it's great uncle, or maybe great great uncle, is uh, this guy Edward Bernays, and his seminal book is the book called Propaganda, and he talks about how to, um, you know, how to you know create messaging that's kind of um, changes um, consumer behavior. You know, he's the guy that got Americans to eat bacon. He's the guy that got um, women in America to smoke. You know, he, you know, he's I think from the 30s or the 40s. I mean, it's a pretty phenomenal book. Uh, but I've just read that. I actually asked uh, Mark Randolph on stage. I actually threw him the first first day I was interviewing him because I was, I was kind of uh, it was like a like a he did a presentation. There was a bit of a Q and A afterwards, and I said to him, "Did you use your great uncle's you know, power of seduction of of the, the American psyche to um, influence American consumers to um, to consume Netflix?" And the, the the first night he I actually threw him and he he was completely flabbergasted. He didn't actually answer it. The second night I asked him in Melbourne, he said. Well, where do you think Netflix and chill came from? <laughs> wow. This is um, – you said it's from Edward Bernays, right? I'm, I'm about to order it right now. Bernays, yeah, called Propaganda. It's pretty good. Um, you, get, you also get it on Audible. Then the uh, – I, I guess the second thing that I, 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 I um, listen to fairly fastidiously is Macro Voices, which is a podcast on macroeconomics that, that's um, by Eric Townsend. It's pretty phenomenal um it you know just it, it's weekly i actually know he's ex- expanded it to a whole bunch of content midweek but um you know it just it goes through you know what's happening in the oil markets what's happening in gold what's happening in treasuries what's happening in the stock market um and then he'll have you know, great um in, in guests to, to interview um on macro and, uh, and a bit of a roundup but the great thing about this is once you understand macroeconomics you understand how the world works you understand why things are happening you understand how politics works you understand you know industry it's it's, it's really f- amazing so i, I highly recommend um, recommend that. God, I feel like I'm doing people such a disservice just for asking for two, but um, we're, we're going to leave it at two because uh, I'm glad I asked you for the second one. That's super helpful. Uh, well, Matt, this has been really, really amazing. What's the best way for people to find you online? Um, on Twitter, Matt Barry, you can find me. I'm usually rambling about something. <laughs> Uh, or LinkedIn. Uh, you can see me on LinkedIn. Or, uh, thanks for listening to this episode of Growth Everywhere. If you right, loved Matt, what you so heard, be sure to right, head back to growtheverywhere.com for today's show notes and a ton of additional resources. But before you go, hit the subscribe button to avoid missing out on next week's value-packed interview. Enjoy the rest of your week, and remember to take action and continue growing. <laughs>